So, Sean, like I mentioned before I press record, I was on a flight. I listened to the Concrete podcast, shout out to those guys, and I clicked your episode, didn't think much of it, didn't read the description, and I was kind of captivated by your story. And I really want to have this conversation. I have some slightly different questions, but also this is a very uh, wide-ranging story. I believe it starts very dark. It has a lot of drama. But the reason I called you on uh, for my audience specifically is because you turned it around in a very bright way with what you're doing today. So I want to give you the floor and I want to start kind of probably in high school or as a teenager. Those are my formidable years. We have a lot of young listeners. What were you like in high school before the chaos begins? Who were you in the 10th grade? Well, the chaos had already started by the time I was oh, in the no. 10th grade. So, I mean, it, it, I, was, I was getting in trouble from the time I was seven years old all the way up until, uh, you know, when I got out of prison. No, it, it was after that. So 2010 is when I stopped doing meth, right? Um, and so that was probably in my 40s. So from the time I was seven till I was 40, I was constantly in trouble. I had good, good, I had stints of, of, you know, where I'd had a job or I did something, you know what I mean? Or had periods of time where I was sober and, and trying to do the right thing. But for the most part, I mean, I was, I was just bad. <laughs> I was bad. I, I mean, there's the, that's very interesting you say that because I started with high school because the cliche is you're 16, you get your driver's license, you start experimenting with drugs and with sex and alcohol. You said the age of seven. So I guess we start with how you get introduced 10 years before the general public to trouble, I guess, because seven is kind of jarring. Well, it, it, it was a lot of it had to do with the fact that my parents got divorced and they used me um, in, in a lot of you know, uh, kids out there these days, you know, are from broken homes or, you know, the family, it's so easy for people to just walk away from relationships now. Right. Or marriages and, and, and that. And so, you know, that happened. And, you know, my, my parents used me as a, a kind of like a, you know, a, what do they call that? Like, a, a it's just pulling me, right? Like I was in the middle all the time and that just continued. And I was an angry kid. I was angry because, you know, of that situation, I was angry because I had no control of, of, you know, when I went to my dad's and he's just, you know, railing against my mom and so is my grandparents. And so when I come home, I'm doing the same thing to her. So that's just like, there's just this, this turmoil. Right. And so that just, lasted for a long time. Uh, I got in the first place I ever got kicked out of was a, uh, a preschool, you know, I was in the third grade. Wow. And I threw a rock. Uh, it was a dirt clod, and I threw it at some kids running, walking past. And uh, I didn't realize there was a rock inside of that. And so it ended up going further than I thought it was going to go. And it hit this little girl in the face. And so that was the first time I got in trouble. But I mean, I was already getting, you know, put with my desk in a closet at, in third grade, right? So the whole classroom is facing the teacher. And I'm in the back in a closet facing away from everybody. And that's where my that's where my desk was. So that was happening in the third grade. So I mean, I was already having this reinforcement that I was bad, right? And no supervision. You know, I became a latchkey kid at, at, in the third grade. So if anybody out there doesn't know what a latchkey kid is, is uh, you take yourself to school, you bring yourself home, um, and you basically have until your parents get home. So there's no supervision, no discipline, no anything. That's horrible for a kid 
in the third grade because most kids they 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 crave um they crave uh what's that word i'm looking for um structure you know what i mean they need structure and i never had that and so discipline for me is even difficult now you know in my 40s because i never learned it so i'm trying to learn it now as i'm as i'm going through and seeing how my how i'm like not disciplined not organized not you know all these things that you know probably get learned when you're younger right i guess one of my biggest fears and at in terms of discipline you're in the third grade you're in the fourth grade and once your teacher says i'm going to call your parents if you don't stop or if you do xyz we're going to call your parents and have a meeting so when you got in trouble and that phone would ring or a principal or a teacher would try to call your your parents weren't interested in keeping you on track the phone would just ring and they wouldn't answer Wow. Yeah, and but the teachers all they took it all in in their own hands, you know, because that was the first teacher that did it. I had another teacher that wrapped my whole desk in corrugated paper, and so literally I was in a like a little desk prison cell, you know, where every and everybody else, you know, I couldn't communicate with anybody, um, you know, just stuff like that would would happen all the time, and I would I was acting out, you know, I was acting out because I was angry, I was having issues, I was a bully. Um, I was a bunch of these things. Um, you know, I made it through uh, to the, to the uh, what was it, uh, middle school, got kicked out of there, uh, expelled, went to another school, went to live with my dad in Sacramento, uh, flunked out of there, ended up going to summer school, uh, got kicked out of that summer school. He said, I'm done with you. I've had enough. Uh, sent me to my uncle's, uh, went to my uncle's in the South Bay, I think San Bruno, California. Uh, and I got kicked out of that school too. Went back home to my mom's. They let me back in. And like three weeks before school was out, it was either two or three weeks, uh, I had been suspended five times. I mean, they, they took a chance by letting me come back, right? And so I ended up getting suspended five times, get 35 referrals to the, to the office. They called me in and they said, hey, you know what? We're not suspending you. We're socially promoting you to the ninth grade. You have straight Fs. Go home. We don't want you here go home. You're, you're, you're getting a three, you're getting an early vacation. And so, you know, that's kind of what it was, <laughs> you know, I, 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 and then I ended up in, uh, during, um, that, that summer, I ended up hooking up with this girl that I knew, um, and sleeping with her. I didn't know she had a boyfriend and her boyfriend was a gang member. And so he called me up during the, the, my freshman year and said, hey, like right right around when, when school just first started. So I guess he found out somehow. Um, I had no idea. I didn't even know who the person was. Um, and so he left a message on my answering machine, which was the one with the tapes, right? I popped that tape out, and I took it to school, and I let all my friends hear it. And at, at, uh, at uh, whatchamacallit, at the first break, and, I, and we all decided, all right, well, we're going to go down there at lunch, right? And I'm like, cool, right? Like, I got backup you know, my, my boys. Right. Um, by the time we got down there, there was three carloads of guys and we walked down to the, cause they had an open campus. So there was a convenience store, um, right down in between where we were, where we parked and the school. And so we're walking down, there's like 15 of us. And, uh, <laughs> the, the, I see them coming towards us and, uh, she bolts and she takes off running. He keeps walking. And I'm like, 
this guy is crazy. You not see that, you know what I'm saying? I've got all these people behind me and you didn't run with her. So he comes up, we kind of surround him and he starts to reach in his pocket. Somebody comes from behind me and they, they hit him and then he just gets pinballed, you know, in between the circle. And then he gets out and he runs up to the convenience store. He got caught by two other people and they picked his ass up, threw him on the counter, rammed him through and knocked everything off the counter. He got a hold of that knife that he was trying to get in the beginning. And he sliced my friend across the face. Wow. All of it was on camera. Uh, and I never touched the guy. I, I didn't get a chance to even get a punch in. I got charged with inciting a riot. And that was my first, uh, my first run-in with the law. That was at 15. Wow. Started doing meth at 16. All right. Um, got introduced to that by my, uh, by my aunt, my step-aunt. Um, and that's a whole long story. Uh, and then from there, I ended up going to the boys ranch for 151 days on a violation for something, um, got out, um, also, I, and then I, I think I ran too. uh, they let me out for a, uh, to go to Thanksgiving with my family and I just bounced. I stole some money from my grandma and I just got on the BART train and took off, went and hooked up with some chick. And uh, caught another two-year suspended sentence for escaping. So, like, all these things that I would do, I would just compound problem after problem after problem after problem, right? My dad's kind of in the picture, but not really. You know what I mean? After after our, our incident, you know, me living with him, we didn't talk for a long time. So, I never really had any, like, solid male role models, right? You had... You had mentioned that your your family, and before we move on, one of the big things I wonder about is blame. I'm 26, and if I had went through what you went through at my age, I would have 100% blame for my parents for what I went through and the childhood experiences I had and the path it took. And I'm sure you had that blame in your 20s as well. But you today, in full honesty, if the cameras weren't on, do you still harbor some blame? for a traumatic childhood and the circumstances you were in still to this day? No, no. And the reason why is because, you know, my, we, we know what we know until we know something different, right? You know, our parents or my parents were working with what they knew, you know, they were trying to do the best that they could. My mom was a single mom. She kept me in the house that, that I was born in. Um, you know, even as a single mom, you know what I mean? It was a, she, she did the best she could to provide for me. I made those choices to do those things, right? I chose to, to, to veer off of a path. I chose to, you know, do X, Y, and Z. I could have, I could have made a different choice. And, but I was just one of those, I just like to get into shit, right? (laughs) I just, and that's always the way it's been. I mean, even now, I mean, I'm shit, I'm not perfect. Just because I, I, you know, I, I've learned some things about myself and, and I have a podcast and some other things that I've got going on doesn't mean that I'm not fallible. You know, I'm not I'm imperfect. And beyond your parents, also considering the idea of like genetics, one of our most popular episodes was an episode about ADHD with mm-hmm. an expert on that. And I've heard you casually brush over that, I believe, in that podcast. But it sounds like you had a pretty severe case of ADHD and almost a perfect mm-hmm. storm from a really challenging childhood without the supervision mixed with a, a genuine genetic disorder. 
Would you say that you had an extreme form of ADHD and does it still affect you today? Absolutely. Um, when I was on meth, that's how I, that's, I didn't realize this until I stopped using and I started looking back at things and like, kind of like, you know, how, how you do, you just sort of process what, you know, where you were and how you got there. I mean, being in prison, you had a long time to, to think about things. And, um, I, you know, I just kind of was like, all right, well, I was one of those tweakers that could start something finish it out like literally i would work on something for i would stay awake for three days working on something until i completed it or perfected it and then i would you know what i mean and most tweakers they've got like a million different things going on they can't they can't like they've got piles of stuff everywhere and that wasn't the case for me and so i was like huh maybe i was like either add or adhd one of the two I uh, still am. I have a hard time concentrating on stuff. Um, like that's it, it's it really bothers me. <clears throat> but I think that you know, as I was going back thinking and looking too, like I had some some traumatic brain injuries too um, when I was a kid. And so from what I've been listening to on the Rogan podcast, the people that he has on, like there could be something there as well. You know, I remember. I and what it was is that I started. So we I lived on a hill, right, a steep hill. And I went like five houses up to the end of the street and I was, I had a, a bike that I, I was, we, were, we made a jump and I put some pylons out, right? And they were pretty far away. And the bike that I was on didn't have freewheel. It had the pedal that kept going. You uh -huh. couldn't, or you, or you, you know what I mean? For the brakes. And I got rolling hell fast and I hit it and just went boom, boom and got a concussion or something, man. And I, I remember I, I hit my head pretty hard, and um, that was the first one. I've been knocked out a couple of times, um, you know, boxing with friends. Uh, and then also, too, I had a football injury where someone just, just came up. So I've, I've had a few concussions as well. So it, uh, I think that played into it, you know, too. Um, you, you briefly brushed into using meth in that first time, and I wanted to kind of ask about that first experience because you know I remember my high school experience I was kind of at a rough high school and even then that person had weed that person might have had some pills that person may have had cocaine but thinking of the the word meth and maybe it's the era maybe there this is a different time or maybe it was the circle you're around what brings a high school student to the first use of what is even at a very young age, taught as a very, very extreme hard drug not to touch? <laughs> Good question. Um, well, it was called crank back when I first did it. It wasn't, it, the meth hadn't even come, like shards and ice and, and you know, the crystal. Uh, it was just this nasty stuff that was ugly and stinky and it would keep you up for a long time. So there was no education around it. There was no, this wasn't frowned upon. You didn't necessarily know exactly what this was? Well, so here, so in, in my friends, they were all like, when I, we would go hang out, right, on like a Friday night, and, you know, they would all disappear. Um, you know, there was a group of us. They'd all disappear and lock the door, and I'd just be left out there, like, you know, because I was the youngest. And... So I'm just like, I'm always wondering, like, what are they doing? What are they doing? And my friend told me, and I'm like, well, why can't I do it? I want to try. And they're like, no, nah, you're, you're too young. We don't want to, you know, and, and I think it was a lot. They just didn't want to be responsible for 
they knew what they were doing was wrong and bad, and they didn't want to be responsible for for giving that to me. And I knew that my aunt, who'd lived down the street, my step aunt, because my dad married her sister, and I knew she was a stoner, right? You just tell, right? You know, stoners. I know she. I could probably get some weed from her, and you know, and I knew the kind of person that she was because I would spend time down there. And so I, I went and, you know, that's where I, I went and got it. And she gave it to me. She was 30 and I think I was like 15. And what is that first experience like? Is, is this a drug where on first experience you are hooked or does it like, what is that moment it's just like? It's a rush. It's a, yeah. it's a rush. It's uh your, 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 your heart starts pounding. Um, and I don't even, I don't even know. I don't know why I even liked it. You know, in that, I, I mean, I, I know why I liked it when I got older because it took on a different meaning when you're 16, you know what I mean? There's no, like, you're not hanging out in clubs. You're not mingling with, with chicks that are doing it too. Right. And so it was just, I would stay up a lot, you know, I'd probably masturbate a whole bunch, you know what I mean? Because it, 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 it is a sexual kind of thing it, it, when you take that, it, it makes you horny, you know, and that brought me back to it a whole bunch of times when I would stop doing it, you know, and I would, I would, you know, it's just the kind of women that were easy. Um, and it just, uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of, kind of where it went for me. It didn't, it didn't happen like that though, until at least I was in, uh, oh, what when I moved to Sacramento when I was about 19 or 20. Do you ever wonder what went through her head or resent what somebody twice your age would? Because, you know, you talk about your friends that would kind of shelter you from that. And, I mean, that's a pretty heavy burden to to put on somebody. Yes, you should probably try to shelter the, the young person in the crew from something that addictive. Do you ever wonder or resent what a 30-plus-year-old would do giving that first experience to a kid? If, if like she was trying to, to, to get at me, I would think it was, it was weird, but I, I was going to find it no matter what, you know what I mean? Because I'm being told I can't have it, but all my friends are doing it. So if it's that bad, why are they all doing it? You know what I mean? There must be something fun about it. Why are you trying to keep me from fun? (laughs) You know what I mean? And so I would have found it no matter what. What was the lowest part of that? specific addiction what was the low was this sustainable for years were you financially or physically or is it just a a super rapid high and a super rapid crash or did you kind of keep it together no (laughs) no um lost everything three times like literally started from zero three times it was all because of meth um, every time I tried to do it differently, the insanity, you know, you, the, the definition of insanity is doing, tr- doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result each time. I tr- every way I tried to do it led to the, to the same, same place. And there were periods of time in my life where I stopped and, you know, something, you know, would bring me back to it or somebody would do it and I would instead of saying no when I knew I should walk away I just I just wasn't strong enough you know the what the fun that I know that I could have on it you know what I mean with this chick or with whatever you know what I mean that that's what drove me more 
And I think even to the part, I, like, I think that I was addicted to, uh, to sex too, you know? And for, I, I never really wanted to say that, um, until I started really looking back at it and how much sex controlled those environments and how many times it brought me back to that same point. So you tried to quit meth three separate occasions and what were the the three reasons and what was the final success story i guess what makes number three work when the other two didn't just not being ready yeah you know uh the i i stopped a bunch of times it wasn't just three i mean it just there were three there were three times that you know let me see there were i tried to stop a a bunch of times i would go through periods where like i want to do good you know what i mean it's like i want to change i want to do good i want you know because that's always been there you know i know that i'm not making my parents proud i know that i'm you know what i mean this life is is you know like i can't keep it together for long periods of time right i know all this about myself And like, I tried, I would try and I would try and I would try, but then I would be doing good and I would sabotage myself. Like almost, almost like, man, it's been a year. I've been working. I'm feeling good. I should reward myself. I deserve to go out and get a teener and get high this weekend. And every time I did it, just lose a job, do this, do that. You know what I mean? It's just, you know, cheat on my girlfriend. I mean, you know, you name it. Every, everything bad that could happen happens because it just, it just like all, like there are no good ideas that come out when you haven't slept for three days. Right. You know, there's, there's that, that's a bad place to be thinking about shit when you haven't slept in three days and somebody's, Hey, you want to go? Yeah, let's go do it. That sounds like a great idea. <laughs> We've been kind of like dialing in on on meth and one drug, but in terms of just, do you believe that an addict is an addict, meaning you could be addicted, your brain could be addicted to food as a coping mechanism, or like you said, sex or alcohol, or or was that specific drug different where no, that's in a different category, or an addict is in fact just an addict, that it could be McDonald's? Mm, that's a good question. Um, there, so my drug of choice would be considered meth, right? And opiates, because after my my meth addiction, I had I, I ran right into a seven year opiate addiction. Although I could function on that, and it didn't ruin anything, it just cost me a bunch of money. Um, but I mean, I've used food to feel better. I mean, I struggle with weight. Um, you know, and so, I mean, I'm like 40 pounds overweight right now. I've gotten back to where I wanted to be, but you know, sometimes I'll just, you know, be in a certain place in my, in life or, or, or mentally. And, uh, you know, I'll just binge on food, you know? And so, I mean, I try not to do it as much. I actually haven't, I I don't eat fast food anymore. Um, but I, I don't exercise either. And I think that's like, I've been really starting to think a lot about that and that very question that you just asked, um, because I am somebody who like, I, I can, I will drink, you know what I mean? I'll have a beer or two, 
Um, I'll have a hard drink or two, um, but usually no more than that. Cause whenever I do bad stuff happens, right? Um, you know, I get angry. I have anger issues. If I drink too much, I get kind of, you know, an attitude and, and, you know, violent sometimes. And so I just know not, not to do that. Um, I used edible marijuana to get off of, uh, opiates and I still, I still microdose THC to this day. Uh, I microdose psilocybin. I think that, uh, uh, plant-based medicines are, are awesome, man. You know, they were put here for a reason. And if you allow them, uh, if you use them in the, in the correct way, uh, they're very beneficial. Now, with that being said, I'm not sure if that's the right way. I'm starting to lean towards abstinence is the best. If you're I mean, like, you know, if you're, because I think I use it as an excuse, right? I'm still, I'm using it as a, it's a crutch, you know, even though it's micro. Yeah. Sometimes I get high, you know? And sometimes when I'm depressed, I'll just stay high on weed, right? And I'm just, so this last, I don't know, few months, I've been really observing my own behavior. And like, why am I doing some of the things that I'm doing? And, you know, I'm really rethinking some of my philosophies about uh, drugs, you know? It's very, it's very interesting that you actually brought that up because it's something that I've, I've heard before and spoken about on this podcast about obviously 90% of experts would say that pure sobriety is, is kind of the only path. But there are a lot of people that are firm believers in using marijuana, using CBD or THC or even plant-based or plant medicines. So it is very interesting to think um, maybe it's just an approach that works differently for either people, but uh, the idea of pure sobriety seems to still be the dominant um, advice, I guess, that I typically hear. So it's interesting to see that you're grappling with, am I using this as, as a crutch or does everybody have a crutch? Does this person who's sober also drink four cups of coffee and like, what is our crutch? And is it okay to have a crutch? Um, th these are very complex and personal questions, I imagine, for you. Yeah, I mean, you know, because I, you know, at the end of the day, I want to be a good influence on my daughter. You know, I have a four-year-old daughter that's, you know, I co-parent. I want to be a good influence there. Um, I'm noticing that when I do smoke weed, you know, like say I get home, right? and I'll smoke some weed. It kills all my motivation. Kills it. And like if I need to get something done, it's probably not the thing to do as soon as I get home, right? And so just learning that kind of stuff, all right, well what can I do? What can I not do? I mean, is this is this even worth it? You know what I mean? Or am I like a mogwai, you know? Am I going to turn into a, am I going to turn into a, a gremlin here? Uh, you know, and come with all kinds of directions, you know? Um, so it's just trying to figure it out. Um, I like, I like being, I like to get high, right? I like that feeling. I like to microdose. Um, it's a, it's like a feeling of well being. Um, you know, I like using mushrooms to kind of expand, um, and, and, you know, go, go inside, right? You know, the meaning of life. I mean, everybody's been trying to chase the meaning of life since the beginning of time, right? 
and, and philosophizing about things and, you know, why is this this and why is that that? And, I mean, even now, you look at where we're at societally and the craziness that's going on, you know, with, with all that. And I don't really want to talk about none of that, but it's just, you know, we're in some weird times. And I think, I think we're, we're like in, an, in, a, in a second age of enlightenment, right? And not just enlightenment with what we're seeing, the curtains being pulled on, on you know, the, the powers that be. But personal enlightenment, too, and self-enlightenment, you know, personal development is really, really, like, booming right now, you know, because people had all this time to think about, you know, like, is this where I want my life to go, you know, in that lockdown? Is this the person I want to be with? Is this, you know, really the way I, I envisioned my life? And a lot of people are, are you know, it wasn't. And they're re- redirecting, they're pivoting, they're, they're, you know, doing more things that, that center around a work-life balance. On that note of, of personal development, there's a cliche question, which is, what advice would you give to someone that's suffering from a hard or a very serious drug addiction? But the reason I, I'm putting an asterisk by that is because there's the other cliche that you can't tell somebody or influence somebody to get sober. That's something that is deep within. So I have two cliches going on. What is your best advice for someone suffering, if there is? And is there actually, in fact, no advice you can offer that it is within from your own personal experience? Well, the one thing I can say is if you are struggling out there with an addiction of, of any sort and it's, you know, becoming something that's, you know, hindering your life, hindering your progress, uh, you know, keeping you stuck in, in the same place or, or even moving you back a few paces, you got to look at that. Um, and nobody's gonna, and nobody can tell you what to do, right? I can't tell you about your problem. All I can do is share my experiences, and hopefully, you know, they, they, maybe something will resonate with you. You know, maybe you'll see and and trust that that you could come to me for advice if you needed to, right? Um, everybody has their own path, and everybody's ready when they're ready. And I, I tried so many times before the light went on and I was like, Oh yeah, I probably shouldn't do that anymore. <laughs> you know? And a lot of it was risk versus reward because when I was doing all those things, I wasn't really risking a whole lot cause I didn't have anything. Right. I was just living the kind of the way that I wanted to sort of off the grid, you know, selling drugs and, and, you know, partying all the time. And, and, uh, I didn't have anything, you know? And so to me, risk versus reward. Well, I'm having a lot more fun doing this. You know what I mean? So the risk wasn't that big. Now it's completely different. It's flipped around. It's like, dude, the risks are, are way too, too high and the reward is way too little. So I, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't know what I would do if put in the situation and somebody said, Hey man, you want to, you want to hit this, you know, with some, with a bowl of met with a bowl of crystal or something. I don't know. I would like to say that I would say no, <laughs> But it, but it depends. I mean, you know, what did, what did I go through that prior day? Am I, you know, what's my mental health like? Am I vulnerable in some way that dealing with something I haven't dealt with? You know, it. Uh, am I in a situation where, well, nobody will know if I do. You know, that plays a big part in a lot of decisions that people make too. So, 
I don't know. You, ta- you talked about risk reward and mental health and, you know, I'm Canadian, so I definitely don't talk about U.S. politics. I don't really talk about politics in general, but you hear a lot about opportunity, good jobs, good mental health care as very simple necessities for people that are struggling. And I always wondered, as it's very easy for a politician to say, well, if you had a good job and you had mental health support, you wouldn't be homeless, you wouldn't be using these drugs, you wouldn't be involved in crime. But as someone who was using drugs, who was involved in crime, if you had a good job opportunity and free mental health resources, do you think you would have gotten off far earlier and would have had a a different path? Are those genuine solutions for people that are struggling at the lowest level? I don't know, man. I I think that's case by case. Yeah. Honestly, Um, I put like I said, I put myself in these situations. I always reverted back to selling drugs as a means to make my money and get by, um, which it allowed me to to have fun, party, um, you know, and, and you know, and, and that took me where it took me, right? Um, but it it always progressed, right? So, and it goes faster. You go down faster and harder each time. Right. Um, so I would say for me, what brought me down and, and brought me to my lowest is when I gave up my rights to my first daughter. And she was 11 months old the last time I saw her. Uh, I had screwed up with her mom. Uh, she had let me, she went to California. We were in Vegas. She went to California for Christmas. I dropped her off at the airport, and she said, all right, well, here's my car. Um, don't drive it, but just pick me back up in the thing, right? And, of course, what did I do? I drove it, and she didn't tell me. She said that she said, she said that the insurance lapsed on it, but I don't, I, I don't remember her saying that. Um, and so I went out partying uh, at the Rum Jungle in Vegas uh, by myself. I was using GHB at the time. And I blacked out coming home and I, I hit a, hit a light pole and, and like, bam, like hit that thing right dead center. And it tacoed the whole thing. Cause it came down on the, on the, on the roof and put a big ass dent in the whole like thing. Nothing happened to me. I popped right out, went across the street, grabbed a Gatorade. The, 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 <laughs> the, uh, the clerk was just like, Cause it was right there. Like, I know she saw it and she's just looking at me like she saw a ghost and I go, you know, like nothing happened. And I go grab my Gatorade, go to pay for it. And she's just looking at me like crazy. And I'm just, and I'm oblivious. Right. And I need that Gatorade because it's a chaser. So I could do another cap of GHB in the car. And I did that two more times, uh, before that, that's a story. That's a crazy story, man. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, Dude, madness. So, anyways, she she said, "Screw this. Um, uh, that's it. We're done." Um, you know, we were kind of working it out, but she's like, "It's over." And I hadn't seen her in like six months. I ended up getting a DUI, um, and uh, I got arrested. And she's had me served while I was in jail, and so I had time to think about it, right? And I chose not to go to the, go to the court date. I chose to give up, um, the rights to my daughter and abandon her. And 
my life went straight downhill from that point. And it was because I was, I was grieving. You know what I mean? It's like, I didn't think it was going to affect me, but watching what happened to me after that, it absolutely affected me. You know, I went to, I got out of there. I ended up moving down to Phoenix, uh, stayed there for six months, stayed drunk the whole time, uh, came back, uh, moved in with some friends, was partying, um, drinking a lot, ended up getting a job at a strip club and hooked up with a girl that was working there. And the first time I met her, I came to her house. I walked in, I knocked on the door, said, come in. I walked in and she's sitting on the couch uh, smoking a bowl of uh, crystal. I knew I should have walked out that door. And I was saying it the whole time, like, walk away, walk away, walk away, walk away. But I, as I was saying that, I was walking right towards her and I took it and I hit it. And then that I was off to the races then, you know. That's when, th- that's when shit got real, um, where I started selling meth. Uh, I was, you know, employing other guys that were dope slammers, like needle injectors, um, you know, skid row kind of guys. I was having them going and doing smash and grab robberies for me, um, in Vegas. I was, uh, and then I would take the stuff, like I would pay them in drugs for all of the stuff that they would bring back, you know, whether it was guns and they did, uh, burglaries and homes, guns, stuff like that. And, uh, I would have all this stuff and then I would turn around and either, you know, fence it on eBay or Craigslist or all kinds of different things I would do with with that stuff. But I ended up selling, I was selling for about a year. Um, and then I was working with this one guy and then all of a sudden one day he calls me and hooks me up with somebody, which is a CI, a confidential informant. So he got busted and said, Oh, I'll give you somebody else to try to get himself out of trouble. And so they set me up and I sold to him five times. And in this whole time that, that I'm selling to him, they're surveilling me. Right. So they're seeing me coming and going, putting a gun in my back, uh, pulling it out, putting it under the seat. Um, did anything feel sketchy at all during those five transactions? No, nothing felt sketchy, but like I knew my time was up. Like I just had this feeling, right? Like, like it's it, it's gonna be over soon, you know. And like all the guns that I had, I had uh, I got rid of. I kept one, and because they were all stolen, the serial numbers were filed off. I mean, each one of those is five years. <clears throat> and so I was lucky in that sense that I got rid of all that shit, um, because not too long after that, I did get raided. And when that happened, I almost died then too. I've almost died before from drug overdoses three times, um, uh, that, that accident could have killed me. Um, and if I would have went any further to the left or the right, I would have ran right into a liquor store right on uh Flamingo Boulevard. So anybody out there that's in Vegas, if you go to Flamingo Boulevard at Boulder highway, there's a, there's a liquor store and there's a Seven Eleven right across the street. I almost ran into that liquor store. <laughs> when, you know, we were talking about you were talking about um, selling drugs, and in every documentary or any famous story or movie, there is the drug dealers and there's the drug users, and there's a huge gap. It is, you know, the drug dealer has the nice car, the money, they're dressed well. The drug users are at the lowest points of society. But it seems like there was a middle ground because you were walking both of those lines. How was that? Was it a weird contradiction where you're 
you know, trying to be a businessman and, and trying to be a dealer, but also you are very much in the world of your customers. Was that a bizarre space to live in? And is it far more common than the movies and documentaries would, would tell? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. I was a horrible drug dealer. All right. I was a barely break even drug dealer until, until, until I got to, until I got to Vegas. But I mean, up until that point, the only thing that ever kept me from getting beat up by my, by the people that, that, uh, I was getting drugs from is I was, I would, I had a lot of clientele and friends that were strippers and they would always be around. And so, well, if they did something to me, then that access would go away. Right. And so that's the only thing that kept me from getting beat up a lot of times. Um, but when I went to Vegas, I still think, I mean, all, I, was, I was supporting a habit more than anything of two people, me and my girlfriend, because she was an addict too. So I had to, you know, do that to, you know, bring money. She would strip and make money, but I'd also, you know, if I had anything left over, I would pitch in towards, you know, rent or whatever. But a lot, dude, I was so irresponsible. So day in and day out, the mission wasn't, let's run this business or let's plan for the future. The mission was in my 24 hours, it is how to make enough money to keep the habit going. Is that just your, your, your nine to five or your 24 seven? Well, I was learning a lot about how to do things at that time. Right. So I was taking apart computers that we were going, I was tweaking, right? Like I said, I was, I was, I would hone in on something and go, man, all right, this is what I want to do. I was counterfeiting hundred dollar bills at the time too. And so doing, learning that whole process, um, figuring out how to sell these things on eBay, figuring out how to, how to make checks and IDs. You know, I was learning how to do that too. Um, a little bit towards the, the back end of me getting raided. Um, and so, I mean, that's what I would do with my time. I'd stay up for three days in a row and I would just, you know, do whatever I could, uh, work on stuff and, and try to perfect things. Um, I was getting information from, you know, this, this this woman that worked for a tour agency and I was selling her drugs, but she gave me stacks, like stacks of papers like this, right? Receipts. She worked for a tour agency. And so this was all customer information, right? It would be their their name, their address, their phone number, their credit card number, their CCV, their their everything you need in a profile for somebody. I had those, like hundreds of them. And so like I would try to mess around and figure out how to do that kind of stuff, which I did uh, at one point um, right before I got busted because uh, I went on the run. So I got raided. They, uh, and that was in 2000, I think it was a 2004. So they raided me. They took me to jail. Um, I had everything set up in the house to where I'm the only person that had the keys to the, the deadbolts on the doors, right? So the doors were, I made everything. I could only access it. The places where, the place where I was making the hundred dollar bills, I could only access it. And they, they looked at everybody else's keys that were in the house. Cause my girlfriend was there, her, our roommate at the time or her friend, I don't know who it was. Um, she was there. And so they, they checked my story. Right. And it, they were like, okay, yeah, he's telling the truth. Um, so they allowed them to stay and I'm the one that went to jail. Right. So I said, this is all me. You know, you guys, you know, cause I needed her to stay out to be able, you know, they blew the doors off the house. Like they literally came in like I was Noriega. Right. And I almost died that night. And this is how, um, like I said, I heard some explosions. I was in the back room. Um, the door shut. 
I had a huge stereo system that it was on pretty loud. Like I didn't even know how my girlfriend was asleep sleeping. It was how loud that the rated thing was on. And I thought cops was playing for whatever reason. I don't know. Um, I hear a boom and then I hear another boom and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm drive by. I, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking I've had someone doing a drive by on the house. Right. I tell my friend, like get on the ground. I grabbed that little gun and I had like a little Derringer 22, right? A little small one. And uh, I, I grab it and I open the door. It's kind of smoky. And I'm like, what the? I, I didn't even think about what it could have been. I'm just like, fuck, they must have shot the house and hit some, hit the sheetrock. And it's now, you know what I mean? I don't know. It's just, it was just weird. I'm coming down the hallway. So there's this hallway and to the right is a, is a wall. In front of that wall is where the, the big screen TV I had was. One of those big projection ones that's like six feet tall and 3,000 pounds. That's in front of, of, of there. The door, the front door is beyond that, but it can't open up all the way because it hits the, it hits the, uh, the TV. So when I go, when I look around, I'm, I'm, I have the gun by my, by my ankle and just picture, I'm, I look around the corner and I could see SWAT shields. And so as soon as I saw SWAT shields, I ditched the gun. They didn't see it. I ditched it behind the TV and I dove on the ground. If they would have seen that gun. It's over. It had been over. <clears throat> and here's another funny part to that story. So the, the, the explosions that I heard and why it wasn't as loud as it should have been. I lived near Nellis Air Force Base at the time. So there's double pane glass windows. I tinted the inside of the window. So when they get to shoot the flashbang in. It went through the first pane, but it bounced back out onto them and blew up on them. Their police dog bit one of the officers. So when they came in, they were pissed, right? They were mad, and I was mouthing off. And while I was, while I was zip-tied on my stomach, um, hog-tied, basically, they picked, two of them picked me up and rammed my head into the, into the big-screen TV. And that pushed the TV up over the gun, so I never got in trouble for it. They never found it. They never found the drugs or the cash either. And they had a police dog. If there's one thing that's kind of like striking through our conversation, it is how many, almost how lucky you are in some ways. You've been tremendously unlucky in, in major circumstances in your life, especially growing up. But you, there are many chances where if that gun is an extra two seconds, you're a little too slow, then you're shot. 